Welcome to the Original Jurisdiction Podcast. I'm your host, David Latt, author of a Substack newsletter about law and the legal profession, also named Original Jurisdiction, which you can read and subscribe to at davidlatt.substack.com. You're listening to the 36th episode of this podcast, recorded on Friday, January 12th. Thanks to this podcast sponsor, NextFirm. NextFirm helps big law attorneys become founding partners. To learn more about how NextFirm can help you launch your firm, call 212-292-1000 or email careerdevelopment at nextfirm.com. Want to know who the guest will be for the next Original Jurisdiction podcast? Follow NextFirm on LinkedIn for a preview. I'm extremely excited about my latest guest, the Honorable Pauline Newman of the Federal Circuit. Judge Newman was appointed to the court by President Ronald Reagan in 1984. Before taking the bench, she worked as both an in-house lawyer and, before that, as a chemist. She received her bachelor's degree from Vassar in 1947, her PhD in chemistry from Yale in 1952, and her law degree from NYU in 1958. As many of you know, Judge Newman is in the news because there's currently an effort to remove her from the bench through a judicial misconduct proceeding. Initially, the claim was that Judge Newman, who was 96 years old, was suffering from cognitive decline and significant mental problems, which rendered her unable to perform her judicial duties. The complaint was subsequently amended to focus on her refusal to cooperate with the investigation against her, including her unwillingness to submit to medical examinations. It is Judge Newman's position that the complaint against her instead of being handled by her colleagues, who are both interested parties and fact witnesses, should first be transferred to the judicial counsel of another circuit. As my readers know, I have long been of the view that the investigation of Judge Newman should be transferred to another circuit, which is what routinely happens when a complaint is made against a circuit judge. But I expressed no view on the underlying issue of Judge Newman's mental ability. My concern was the violation of due process. I now have a view on Judge Newman's acuity. And it is that she is not only with it, but intelligent, articulate, and perfectly capable of continuing to serve on the federal bench. I base this opinion not just on the lengthy interview you're about to hear, which is longer than my typical episode and pretty much unedited, but also four hours that I spent with her earlier this month. I hung out with her in chambers for an afternoon. We conversed pretty much continuously for that entire period, And not once did I notice her suffer from a so-called senior moment. I also saw her walk repeatedly back and forth across her rather large chambers without any assistance. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Judge Pauline Newman. Judge Newman, thank you so much for joining me. I'm pleased to talk with you. So let's start with your childhood, your upbringing. I believe we share something in common. Our birthdays are very close, so we're both Gemini. But what I was thinking was we were both born in New York City. You were born in New York City, correct? Yes, indeed. And actually, I do think that a good deal of the person that I am comes from growing up in New York, as I've seen more of the world. Perhaps you've noticed as well, there seems to be something in our character, a combination of perhaps skepticism as well as a devotion to what's right. I think a good deal of that got into my soul as I was growing up in the critical environment of New York. So I am curious, what did your parents do and did you have any lawyers in your family? Yes, my father was a lawyer. 
He was a sole practitioner in New York. One of my mother's brothers was a lawyer, although what I remember most about him, was they're all deceased, was that he was also in vaudeville. He had a song and dance act with Walter Winchell as a young man, and I was very proud of that. My mother was a school teacher in the New York City public school system. So I'm curious, a Washington Post profile of you mentioned that you learned to fly planes, drive race cars, and ride motorcycles. Can you say more about that? It does not sound like a typical New York City upbringing. Well, actually, at the time that I was growing up in New York, it was during World War II, and it wasn't that unusual at all. There was a combination of becoming aware of what was happening in the world of mechanics, what was happening in the world of airplanes. They were all of the bombings. The women were ferrying the bombers to England, although generally they didn't participate in combat. So learning to fly was what everyone did. All the high school classes learned how to fly planes. In terms of the Automobiles, again, there was a fascination at that time, a new fascination during and after World War II with automobiles and with mechanics, the same with motorcycles, with bikes. So it wasn't unusual at the time. It would have been almost unusual not to have those interests. Huh. I'm curious, Judge, where did you go to high school? The high school was called Far Rockaway High School in Queens. I was not too far away from a small airport that after class we all went out and learned how to tune the planes. You had to really tune the planes about the same way that the automobiles were being tuned. And again, the war was on. My entire high school class enlisted en masse. 90% of them died in the Normandy invasion. But the patriotism, the national spirit during that war is so different. Not because I think Americans are any less patriotic, but because of the causes and the spirit of the nation. Mm -hmm. It's one of the things that I worry about. I wonder if we get a chance to talk about my own experiences on the court, whether there have been indeed such a change in the attitudes that everything is different. So it's interesting. It sounds like you were very scientifically or mechanically inclined as a student, and you had a very impressive first career as a chemist before going to law school. So What led you to get a PhD and then work as a chemist, one of the first women in that very male-dominated field? Well, there was a fascination with science, again, as a result of World War II, and particularly the atomic bomb. A good deal of that science during the development was kept secret because there was much concern in the nation that this technology would be developed by our enemies. And in fact, you may recall that some of the people who led 
the development of atomic energy in the United States had come from Germany. There were a lot of very smart scientists on all sides of that war, but there was a fascination with science by everybody. And I think it just happened that my mind took to it, perhaps because I've always been skeptical. I think that's been part of my tradition as a judge, to be skeptical and to make any progress at all in science. You just have to raise questions about things for which no one knows the answers and think, well, there has to be an answer. I'm going to go out and find it. So I'm curious, you had a very successful career as a chemist. You obtained two patents, which you showed me when I visited you in chambers. Why did you decide to go to law school? It sounds like chemistry was going very well for you. I didn't change my career to go to law school. I went to law school at night, which was easy to do and available at NYU. I lived a block away from the NYU law school. And when I would come home from work, working as a scientist, I would generally go to a local restaurant at Sheridan Square in Greenwich Village called Louis. And after a while, the night law students would turn up at the same local restaurant eating the cheap pasta that was available there. So I knew that there were classes available just down the street. And it was interesting. And I was eating too much. So that sort of changed my lifestyle a little bit. But I just went to law school to learn some things that I hoped would be useful, or at least would be interesting. Were you focused on IP law, patent law when you went to law school, or was that something you focused on later? Absolutely not. And you may know that IP law and patent law were not taught in law school in those days. This is really quite a recent development if you take the historical view. But IP law, patent law, although there was patenting activity, and I had some inventions that the people at Cyanamid were processing, and it was generally understood it was a job for failed lawyers and failed scientists. It was not something to aspire to. Patents were important, not the way they are now, because science and technology were not the way they are now. If, if you ask Google how it's measured, I'm not sure, but the dependence of the nation on science and technology at that time even just going back to the time of the beginning of the Federal Circuit, it was somewhere in the 15% range. The same charts, the same graph is now over 70%. Wow. There have been dramatic changes in the nation's commercial activities as well as intellectual interests. And as a result, the law schools have changed. They have pretty much appreciated that you need to have rules in intellectual property areas as well. 
And you've been instrumental in developing those rules as a judge. But let me go back to your career. What was your first job after law school? I had the same job that I had all the time that I went to law school. So again, having gone to law school at night, I was working for FMC Corporation. And it was a combination of science and technology and moving to learning about patent systems. And it turned out that it was interesting. I came to understand and appreciate how important it was. Certainly industry knew how important the intellectual property aspects were, not just patents, copyrights and trademarks, which were a little bit less controversial among the purists. Trade secrets was really what a good deal of industry was based on. And as science evolved, it was harder and harder to keep trade secrets so that the patent system And as you know, the patent system was a thousand years old. So the principle of encouraging technological advance at all star Venice, ancient Venice, gets the credit for this, for awarding something like a patent to people who brought in technology to help control water flow. Ah, that's very interesting. I did not know that. So I'm curious, at FMC, did you then move from a chemist or scientific role into a legal role since you stayed at FMC Corp? Yes. After I finished law school and found that what I was doing was interesting, I essentially practiced a good deal of what I did almost from the beginning was not just the technological aspects with the technology transfer and the licensing and the joint ventures and all of the things that the chemical, mechanical industries after World War II were really uh, exploding in the nation. So take me then from your time at FMC to your joining the federal circuit. What was your path to the federal bench like? Well, I was with FNC for 30 years, so it wasn't as if this was a path. I had reached retirement age at FNC, and meanwhile, for reasons that I haven't really deciphered that I didn't need to decipher at the time, I had been involved in things that I thought were important to me or important to the nation. And as technology got to be more and more important, and as it looked as if the the law was lagging behind, I had interested myself in all of this, spoken out as to what I thought. And so I participated in the study that led to the federal circuit. It was initiated by President Carter and eventually completed by President Reagan as to how the law was not keeping up and not catching up with what was happening to the detriment of the nation, to the detriment of technological advance. And so we said so. The 
group of leaders, Jimmy Carter, uh, pulled together the 20 or 30 people in the nation who had something to say, or at least were saying so loudly. So I was known, and when an opening arose on the court, I eventually was nominated for that opening. Your career as a judge is very rich, and it's not our focus today, but you've issued many landmark opinions. Next month, you'll celebrate 40 years on the federal bench. So looking back over your four decades of judicial service, what would you say is your proudest accomplishment? I think, even though I was involved in all sorts of things that were going on in the development of the law, I think my accomplishment was a very personal one, that I gave every case my fullest attention, that I didn't cut any corners. I was as concerned about the sole pro se litigant who couldn't afford a lawyer as the giant companies who were building the national strength, international strength, helping to make the nation the world's technological leader. One of the things that has disappointed me in recent years is that according to all the people who count technological leadership, and they put numbers on it, the United States has significantly slipped. And although certainly there are a lot of reasons besides the federal circuit, at the same time, any contribution that may have been disadvantageous needs to be understood thoroughly and confronted. And to the extent that I have been speaking out all these years about what I believe based on my life's experience, that I think is my accomplishment. That's very well put, I think, and it's impressive the dedication you evidence to your cases. So let's now turn to the reason you're in the news, this effort to remove you from the federal circuit. It started with claims that you are suffering from cognitive decline and engaged in paranoid and bizarre behavior. If you are not in fact disabled or otherwise incapable of performing your judicial duties, then why are your colleagues united in trying to remove you from the bench? I still cannot understand it. I ask everybody that question. Why is everyone so down on me that they are destroying me? They, they removed me from the bench in secrecy and then told me afterwards, you're not going to hear any more cases, get out of here. And the whole thing just took me by surprise. I thought we were all there doing our best. I thought we were all friends. And although I've heard a lot of explanations, and I don't know which ones are true, maybe if we ever get to the point of litigation, either in court or before the Supreme Court's committee, I'll ask my colleagues or ex-colleagues, whatever they are, why 
they never even said anything to me. They say, dissenting too much? Tell me. Actually, I think I didn't dissent enough. I went along when I agreed with the result, but didn't quite agree with the reasoning, unless I thought that it was really significant to the development of the law. I would go along. And so as to how I've turned out to be an enemy of the people, <laughs> I refuse to understand. But I hope that this litigation will allow me to depose and cross-examine, to expose the falsehood. This is about I had a heart attack, which made me so decrepit. Now that I fainted and had sense implanted, none of that was true. And even though I immediately and loudly said, that's ridiculous. I've never had a heart attack. I would always knock wood when I would say that. But nevertheless, I have never had a heart attack. And yet the chief judge persisted in that. And my, uh, I understand, has been had been saying that I had that heart attack two years earlier, in which case, why'd they wait so long huh. if I was decrepit, disabled, with a heart attack? So there are so many things that I don't understand. So from one viewpoint, this litigation, I don't know how it's going to proceed. There's very little precedent. The precedent that exists, they're violating such as taking your complaints to a neutral circuit, they've refused. So all of these things that are going on are discouraging. Absolutely. And I've been very upset about the refusal to transfer. I don't understand the justification for that. But let's turn to some of the justifications that have been offered for trying to remove you from the bench. Perhaps the most significant criticism is that you are very slow in issuing opinions, which is slowing down the work of the court and is unfair to the litigants. So if you can't get your work done in a timely fashion, they would argue, isn't it time to hang up your robes? Expecting to be asked that question, I brought the statistics. And because I am not the slowest, on the court. I have been slow, and I know why I'm slow. It's because I write more dissents than others, and I know I'm more thorough. I never cite a case without making sure that I read it myself and understand how that precedent arose. I don't just take the clip from Westlaw that makes my point. However, here are the statistics for the months, starting with the month in which I was removed in March 2023. Here are the five oldest cases. We get monthly statistic counts produced by the court to, and I think it's on the webpage of who has the oldest cases, or at least so that we know. The oldest case in the court was 442 days old. Judge Rayner was the authoring judge. Next oldest case was 387 days old. Judge Cunningham, 
was the authoring judge. The next oldest case was 238 days old, Judge Stark. The next oldest cases were two that were 178 days old, Judge Stoll and Judge Newman. That was March. April, the notice the, telling me that I was off the bench because I was so slow, that was March. The official complaint then was filed March renewed in April. The oldest case in the court was 417 days old, Judge Cunningham. The next oldest case was 308 days old, Newman. Next oldest case, 207 days old, Cunningham. The next oldest case, 200 days old, Cunningham. And the next oldest, 180 days, Judge Moore. Now we come to May. These things have really heated up by May 2023. The oldest case, 239 days, Newman. 238 days, Cunningham. Uh, the reason the days are close is because they counted from the day the case is argued and submitted for decision. Next oldest case, 231 days, Cunningham. Next oldest, 213 days, Moore. June, next oldest case. Now, I got by this time, I have been removed from everything since March because my cases are too old. But I've got an old bunch now, so I'm more conspicuous on the list. Now I've got the oldest case, 269 days. The next oldest, 240 days, is Cunningham. Then I have two cases as old as these two Cunningham cases, and then followed by 207 days, Judge Clevenger makes the list. So it goes on. By this mm -hmm. time, I haven't heard an appeal since March 6th. Mm -hmm. So I, I was removed before in theory that I was old. And these old cases, these are my backlog of cases that I have been writing. And as somebody pointed out, they never tried to remove me from my backlog of six or seven cases that I had heard and that had been submitted before I was removed. Because obviously nobody wanted to write them. They were difficult cases. I have always, throughout my career, when I have been a presiding judge, and with therefore the not the authority, the obligation to assign the authoring judge, that the first thing that I would do would be to make sure that the junior most judges on the panel had interesting, important cases assigned to them. And part of this was because when I first came on the court, that didn't always happen to me as the junior most, and I remembered that. And the other thing that stuck with me was that for the really difficult cases, unless there was one where I was in the minority, that I would tend to assign it to myself because I had sometimes more confidence in myself 
than in some of my colleagues. Maybe they knew that I had my own views about all of us. Maybe that is what turned my colleagues against me. Again, I hope someday to find out of all the theories that I've heard, not one of them is complimentary to colleagues on the court. This podcast is being sponsored by NextFirm. If you have wondered whether launching a law firm could be the next best step for your career, NextFirm has the experience and expertise to help. Contact NextFirm at 212-292-1000 or email careerdevelopment at nextfirm.com today to learn more. And follow NextFirm on LinkedIn for updates on future original jurisdiction guests. So speaking of junior colleagues, I heard Judge Cunningham's name a lot on the list of delayed opinions, but Judge Cunningham is new to the court. So was she maybe assigned to some older cases or something? Because I don't know if she's been on the court long enough to have such a backlog. I wonder whether something happened there or something. Well, certainly there are reasons. And without going into the reasons, we still have the fact of old cases. Now, in the early days of the federal circuit, if a judge fell behind, there was conversation, and the chief judge said, do you need more help? We have a large central staff of lawyers, very bright lawyers. They've all been recruited to act against me, but their jobs depend on it. And that's what they're doing. At the same time, it's the central staff. What the circuits, all of the circuits do, and what we used to do, if someone was slow, is offer them some help. And for whatever reasons, if I was behind because I spent more time writing cases, whatever reasons the other judges had for being behind, there was no move to say, all right, you're not going to hear any more cases, so you get rid of your backlog. And what they did for me is they didn't even say till you get rid of your backlog, is just get off the court. It was only after six months of loud squabble that somehow it attempted to be tied to my backlog. However, I did get rid of the backlog, and I still have not heard any cases. I've asked to be restored. When I got rid of my last case, silence. I don't even get the courtesy of a response. So I'm curious, you mentioned you've cleared your backlog, and you mentioned that there is a staff. But my understanding is Chief Judge Moore, according to your argument, has denied you staff, including a judicial assistant and a law clerk. And I think Chief Judge Moore is claiming that they quit on you because of problems in your chambers. What do you have to say about the situation in your chambers and with your staff? Well, those are complex issues. My judicial assistant was removed very soon after all this noise started. And has made some statements that do not stand the light of day, but there's been no opportunity to cross-examine or anything else. For instance, he wrote in an affidavit 
that in connection with why I was disabled, that the court installed chairs in the corridor outside my office so that I could sit down because I was disabled. Now, it is true that at that time, the court installed chairs outside of my chambers on the eighth floor, and they installed identical chairs with the same upholstery outside of Judge Moore's office on the ninth floor. That didn't slow this fellow down at all in terms of his creative statement that he knew I was disabled because the court had put chairs in the corridor outside of my office. In any case, he was removed as my judicial assistant. He was removed by the chief judge. He was my employee. According to the statute, I hire my judicial assistant and law clerks. Never mind, Judge Moore removed him. There I was without anyone to answer the phone, anyone to do my typing, anyone to do all of the things. The judicial assistant, when he left without a word to me, took my telephone and my computer, my chamber's computer, which is the one that the judicial assistant had been using, took it away. Uh, why he took it away, I have no idea. But what I do know, this was in March, what I do know is that Judge Moore has refused to return it. Here it is almost a year, and there is critical information on that of my personal information. Instead, she filed the affidavit of the people from the IT department about when I had arguments with them, I demanded the return of my chamber's computer. And on, I remember the day, May 15th uh, of last year, is the day that all judges are required to file their financial disclosure form with the administrative office. And my financial disclosure information was on that computer. And so I made a big fuss about it. And so the IT people filed affidavits saying that I was paranoid and that I accused them of taking my information. Certainly I told them, this is my information. I need it, give it back. They've never returned my chamber's computer. All that I can think of is that there are things on that computer that help me or hurt them. What reason do they give for not returning your computer? No reason. No reason at all. They said that we transferred to your drive everything you need. And my thought and answer is, how do you know what I need? And, mm -hmm. and but what I do know is that for filling out the financial disclosure form, which is a nice complicated nine-page form, the previous one would have been on that computer. And although I have only one source of outside income, 
which all judges are required to disclose. My mine is uh, the royalties of a textbook of which I'm a co-author, that when those royalty statements would come in, it would be recorded by the judicial assistant and all of the other activities. Then there's one final sad chapter to all of this, and that is after two months without a judicial assistant, my past retired judicial assistant, Will McKelly, agreed to come back on a temporary basis. She was over 70. She was retired. She was earning a pension. And at first they told her that she would lose her pension. Then I knew that was wrong, but there was not a chance that either she or I could conceivably take. But there is a perfectly clear system for a re-employed annuitant, so-called, without losing the pension. And you go through a system where the chief judge of the court passes it on to the central administrative office, and they look at it to make sure there aren't abuses, and so on. So after a lot of noise, Judge Moore, starting last June, signed for my retired JA to come back. And this is all on a 60-day-at-a-time system. Then she agreed to a renewal two months later, but came the next renewal and she refused. And what was the justification for not renewing your JA again? Well, what she put in what she wrote to me of why I was refusing was that Wilma had not shown she needed the money. Uh, to which my answer was, what does that have to do with I need a JA and she is willing? And she never answered that. Huh. However, they've cut her off completely as of, I think it was December 9th. There's nobody sitting in my entryway. There was no one to do my typing, to enter my edits. There's no one to answer the telephone. So I've appealed directly to the administrative office to say, you know, Judge Moore refuses to process this. Will you? I don't have an answer. That was a couple of weeks ago. Speaking of computer stuff, IT stuff, one of the allegations about you is that you were unable to sit through this basic computer training and answer some simple questions about the training. What do you say about that? Is that true? It's outrageous, to put it mildly. Not only is it outrageous, but it is a conspicuous, verifiable falsehood. The head of the IT department swore that I failed the training test 20 times. To my credit or discredit, I never took the test. <laughs> so they can't possibly have any records of my taking the test and failing. It was, I forget how long it took, half an hour. I always had something more pressing and I had no trouble at all doing what I needed to do on the computer. I also had a very talented staff. All the young people who are law clerks are 
generally skilled in computer activities if there's something that needs to be done. And so it was rare. And I'm sure that their records, I assume they keep a log of the services that the help desk provides, will show how very rarely I asked them for help. Well, let me go back then and ask again, why do you think your longtime colleagues are trying to oust you from the bench? I think our conversation has shown that you are perfectly intelligent and lucid. So why are they doing this to you if you are not, in fact, disabled? I cannot understand. I ask everybody this question. And the only answer that they get is that they're afraid of the chief judge, which ought to be incomprehensible. What are they afraid of? That she'll do the same thing to them that she's doing to me or what? And chief judges have a term of seven years. They're not here forever. And it's the only explanation that anyone has ever given me. They also say that they don't mind since I write dissents. They don't mind getting rid of me because uh, dissents are critical. And everyone knows that more often than not, my dissents, my side is taken eventually. And so I don't know the answer to that. But I am learning in my old age things about human nature that I would prefer not to know. Mm. Wow. So let me ask you then, just on a personal level, having colleagues and friends of yours of many years trying to force you off the bench and force you out of this job that you love, just on a personal level, how does that make you feel? Other than angry. It's so incomprehensible to me that I just don't know what to say. The fact that my colleagues don't appreciate my wisdom or whatever it is that I try and do on the bench doesn't really particularly bother me. Judges are supposed to speak their mind. If someone else comes out differently and explains why, that's what the system is about. The results that a court reaches in a close case, in a contested case, is more comprehensible if the other side is exposed. That I think all of us, all judges, once we decide a case, if we're writing the opinion, a unanimous panel will say what persuaded us to come out the way we did. If it's not unanimous and someone has made a strong statement about why it ought to go the other way, it's not quite as straightforward. And if every senior paper in every law school in the nation takes sides on one side or the other, it exposes the flaws, certainly exposes the flaw. In my own reasoning, there haven't been very many dissents against what I've written. Well, let me ask you this final question before we go to the closing questions. You are 96 years old. You've been on the bench for 40 years. Why not retire? This controversy, I think, is complicating your legacy. 
why not just give Chief Judge Moore what she wants and leave the bench? I've thought ever since I became eligible to retire, which was really quite a while ago. But by that time, I felt that my voice and my viewpoint was needed at that time. And so I put it off. It's not that I'm anxious to start another career. I'm not going to go out and be a litigator at this stage of my life. I'm not going to go out and do other things that might have been hobbies at one time at this stage of my life. And so I just let it go, deciding the cases as they came along because I felt that what I was doing was more important than to me. And if I can say so without any braggadocio to the nation, nationally and internationally. And so I just stayed. And at this point, to give up because I'm being bullied and stressed and so on is something that my nature will not let me do. I'm getting on in years. I think what happened is that some of my colleagues have heard me say that I intend to live forever, and I think they're afraid I might do so. <laughs> and so they are helping me let nature take its course. Well, I hope uh, on behalf of many of us that you keep fighting the good fight. But to turn to my final questions, my speed round, these are four questions I ask all my guests. My first question is, what do you like the least about the law? And this can either be the practice of law or law as a more abstract system. Well, that of itself would be a full session or many to think about what one likes the least and what likes the most, because what I like the most and what has made a major impression on me in the current political climate is that in many areas, the courts and the law are about all we have in our branches of government to keep us on the stable path that the Constitution tried to put us on. And to the extent what I like least is really what seems to slow that progress, the cost of legal services. I don't begrudge those who provide the services. They earn everything they earn. However, too many people can't afford legal services. And what I remember from my work in the private sector is that the cost of litigation was a factor in every step that was taken, just as the cost of the research and the cost of the sales force and the probabilities that you might have an argument and all of that. So to the extent that there are many moves towards pro se representation and resolutions of these areas, because a good deal of what's wrong with the law, otherwise judges can fix, but some of the major, most profound aspects that just come with the complexity of civilization need attention. And so there is not equal justice available to all, because if you can't afford it, you don't get it. And yes. that needs attention from everybody. 
And I do think that it's not being ignored, but I think it's a major problem. My second question is, what would you be if you were not a lawyer and a judge? I'm not sure. At first, I thought I would stay as a scientist. But some of the exposure that I had, you know that I worked for UNESCO for a couple of years in Paris, and my the science policy department that I worked with, our job was developing the developing nations. That was industrial development. And so I might have stayed or migrated into the international arena more than what I was doing. There are all sorts of interesting opportunities for lawyers, as you perhaps know for yourself as well. And so I'm not sure, but I have been blessed with opportunities to do work that I thought was making a contribution where one person really you know, gets to run the nation, but still was making a contribution. My third question is, how much sleep do you get each night? Well, more than I used to, because everything that I read about the elderly is make sure you get enough sleep. So all things together, I think I get about eight or nine hours worth of sleep, although it's often it's split with an afternoon nap and then the rest of it at night. So I advise everyone who aspires to setting some records for old age, get enough sleep. <laughs> Excellent. And that actually leads me to my final question. So in addition to get enough sleep, any final words of wisdom, such as career advice or life advice for my listeners? Well, I think my advice, not so much as to career, but integrity, to respect your own integrity, to stick with the truth, stand up for what's right, no matter how powerful the opposition you face. Well, I think that is a great note to end on, Judge. You have been standing up for what you believe is right. So thank you for joining me and thank you for your years of service to the nation. You and you too. Thanks so much to Judge Newman for joining me. Based on our conversation, you can judge for yourself whether she is cognitively impaired. Thanks to NextFirm for sponsoring the Original Jurisdiction podcast. NextFirm has helped many attorneys to leave big law and launch firms of their own. To explore this opportunity, please contact NextFirm at 212-292-1000 or email careerdevelopment at nextfirm.com to learn more. Thanks to Tommy Harron, my sound engineer here at Original Jurisdiction, and thanks to you, my listeners and readers. To connect with me, please email me at davidlatt at substack.com or find me on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at David Latt and on Instagram at David Benjamin Latt. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate, review, and subscribe. Please subscribe to the Original Jurisdiction newsletter if you don't already over at davidlatt.substack.com. This podcast is free, but it's made possible by paid subscriptions to the newsletter. The next episode should appear one week from now, on or about Wednesday, January 24. Until then, may your thinking be original and your jurisdiction free of defects. <laughs>